Hey guys, thank you for tuning in to the Risen Nation Church podcast. I pray that this message today impact your life and above all, draw you into a deeper encounter with Jesus. I wasn't going to start here, but I really um, I felt the unction of the Lord as, as my brother was quoting it to, to read through this. But Philippians chapter 10, uh, 3, wow, verse 10, dear Lord, Lord help me. It says that I may know him, can we just read it together? And the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, it's all together, being conformed to his death, it's all together. If by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Okay, you can stop reading with me. Not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has already laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind. Come on, take it personal this morning. And reaching forward to those things which are ahead. I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So according to this, what is the upward call? It's not your ministry. It's not your anointing. When we quote this, it's always so that I can attain to some gifting that I desire. You can't desire a gift. It's a gift. Can't choose what somebody gives you. I mean, you can pray that the Lord uses you, but how many of you have had a birthday party and you invite people to come and you say, I mean, maybe if you're three years old, but bring this for me and bring this gift for me. It's a gift. You don't really get a choice. The Lord blesses people with gifts. He gives grace. He gives measures of grace. And so he's not talking here about your calling, your ministry, what you want to do with your life. This upward call is that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. This is the, upper, this is the upward call. I want to read this out of the Passion. It's really good. Ten, verses 10 and 11, it says, And I continually long to know the wonders of Jesus and to experience the overflowing power of his resurrection working in me. I will be one with him in his sufferings and become like him in his death. And only then will I be able to com experience complete oneness with him in his resurrection from the realm of death. That's so good. Only then will I be able to experience complete oneness with him in his resurrection from the realm of death. And so, we all want to experience resurrection, but you have to die first. We all want to experience newness of life. But Paul is saying that if I can just attain death, if I can be made conformable to his death and, and be in the fellowship with him in all of his sufferings, then I will die. And only then can I really experience resurrection. So I pray that we experience resurrection today but don't resist if it feels like death. I said, don't resist if it feels like death. And as Christians, we have 
blame the devil, and we have shunned every, every opportunity we can of every challenge on it can't be from anything. It has to be from somewhere else and from someone else, but God can't be in this at all. It has to be from the devil. Well, maybe God wants to kill you and to kill your ambitions. Maybe God wants to kill what you once thought. Maybe God wants to kill your past and kill your thoughts of shame and guilt. Maybe God wants to kill your religion so you can be resurrected to a brand new life. And I pray that we experience resurrection today, here and now, not like it's a thing that's gonna happen in the future and we're praying for it, that we'll experience resurrection. And we use the word shall, even though the translators added the word shall, but the resurrection is now. I said the resurrection is now. He's here, he's a person, his name is Jesus. Is there anyone that has come to celebrate our resurrected king this morning? You ought to lift your voice. His name is Jesus, and I am so thankful that he is our resurrected king. I'm thankful to be in the house of the Lord with you all this morning. Happy Resurrection Day, not happy Easter. Amen? I just wanted to say one thing also, um, and I shared it briefly at, at one of our prayer rooms, but kind of the word I got for um, Franklin and for Chicago and all that God is doing, I am so thankful. Can we bless God for Apostle William and Pastor Emily of this house? I mean, he said don't call you pastor, so what about Willie? No, okay. And I'm so thankful for what God is doing in this, this don't call him Willie, that was a joke. For this new season and, uh, and, the, and the word that, that the Lord kind of gave me was in, in Acts 19, and, and, uh, and Pastor William quotes it a lot about these 12 men that go and change Asia. Remember that in Acts 19? The chapter starts with, with Paul going to Ephesus, and he's talking to these 12 men, and, and he asked them, what, uh, or, do you want to experience the Holy Spirit? How many of you remember this in Acts chapter 19? He says, do you want to experience the Holy Spirit? And they're like, what, what are you talking about? We don't know what the Holy Spirit is. What Holy Spirit are you talking about? And he's like, okay, well, what, bapti like, what have you been baptized into? And these, these disciples that are in Ephesus says, well, we've been baptized into John's baptism, the baptism of repentance. And Paul said, that's great, but there's another baptism that's even greater than the baptism of repentance. And this is what the, the I think the thrust of what God is gonna do in Chicago and in Franklin is, is he's going to baptize sons and daughters in Jesus Christ. He sa it says that you've been baptized in John's baptism with the baptism of repentance, but there's another baptism that you can actually be baptized into Jesus Christ. The more I say it, the more I feel like it's gonna be breakthrough a little bit. You can be baptized into the life of Jesus Christ. Baptized is going down one way, being purified, being washed, being cleansed, being changed, being renewed, and coming up a whole brand new type of life. And I think people, in, especially in America, have, have stopped at the baptism of repentance, but there is another one. 
And Paul goes on to say that being baptized into the life of Jesus Christ is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And we, and especially in the Pentecostal world, we talk about the baptism of the Holy Spirit as you have tongues now. And that's amazing. And that's great. These are effects of being baptized into the life of Jesus. We, we say, oh, I've been baptized in the Holy Spirit because I prayed for the sick and they were healed. That's amazing. Those are results. But have you been baptized into the life of Jesus Christ? Have you died to yourself and the life that you now live in the flesh, like Paul said, do you live by the faith of the Son of God? Do you live like Jesus? Is my goal to be like Jesus on the earth? Breaking religion. Is my goal to be baptized and to come up like the man, Jesus? Or is it to come up and still deal with all the things that has to do with me, all my garbage and all my things? What's amazing is that when we break through that religion and this false humility, it changes everything and it'll set you free because I don't have to care what you think anymore because it's not me. I don't have to care what I think anymore because it's not me. He's baptized me into his life. He's baptized me into his character, into his name. When we say in the name of Jesus Christ, it's into his authority and into his character. It's not, a, we've made it this religious statement that you do when you baptize people. And so I believe Franklin and Tennessee and Dallas are gonna experience the baptism of Jesus Christ. I believe and other cities of this nation and this world will experience a baptism of Jesus Christ and they will move on from repentance. We got it. Let's move on. Like, like Paul said, let's, let's move on from elementary things. And if you still move, need repentance, don't move on. Don't miss the step. Okay, if you still need to repent and change the way you think, but once you've changed the way you think, if you need to repeat, repent again, you've gone back to old thinking. <laughs> it, repentance is to take on a new mind. It's more than change the way you think. It's to take on his mind, to take on his thoughts. So I'm believing that we are gonna have a movement in this country of the baptism of the Holy Spirit and people are gonna receive the real Jesus and what it is to step into his life what it is to step into his authority, what it is to step into his power and his dominion and to think like him and to talk like him and to walk like him. Revelation 19 says this, the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy, meaning that his life, his testimony, his witness, the evidence of who he is, is prophetic of a people to come. We've used that verse for all kinds of things. What it means is the testimony, the witness, the life, the evidence given of Jesus' life is the spirit of prophecy. His life itself is prophetic. His life itself is prophetic of a generation to come that smells like him, that walks like him, that talks like him, that dies daily so he can become resurrected in them. So that's what Paul was saying, that I can become conformable to death. I want Costi to become conformable to death, that I may attain to the resurrection of life, that I may attain to this life of Jesus who is resurrection. 
and we go back to repentance and we go back to repentance and sin consciousness and all this stuff that religion has tells us to do week after week, come get right with God, come do this so you can attain something in God and it's religion, 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 taking us back to repentance, sin consciousness. And he's saying, I have another baptism. It's called the life of Jesus. If you would just be baptized in it, you wouldn't deal with all the garbage you deal with. If you would just believe who you are and what I've done for you, it would change everything. It would be the freedom that you need. Amen? So this is not gonna be a a somber day. I feel like preaching today because Jesus is good, amen? All right, Matthew 28. Go to Matthew 28. God, flip Tennessee upside down in Jesus' name. Flip Chicago upside down. Flip Dallas upside down in the mighty name of Jesus. Break religion. Break strongholds of thinking. Break strongholds. <clears throat> Things we believe about ourselves in Jesus' name. Somebody say amen. Matthew 28. We're going to start reading in verse, in verse 1. It says, now after the Sabbath, as the first day of the week began to dawn, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. His countenance was like lightning and his clothing as white as snow. And the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. The angel answered and said to the woman, do not be afraid for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. Verse six says, he is not here. Someone say out loud for he is risen. And he said, come see the place where the Lord lay and go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And indeed he is going before you into Galilee. Underline these words. And he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him. Say, there you will see him. It's in Galilee that, they, that he's, the angel is saying, tell the disciples, there they will see him. In Galilee is where they'll see Jesus. Behold, I have told you. So they went out quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to bring his disciples' word. And as they went to tell his disciples, behold, Jesus met them saying, rejoice. So they came and held him by the feet and worshiped him. It's, can you imagine? It's amazing. I always like smirk when I read this because I can just, like if, if it was me, I would pop out of a corner and be like, rejoice, and just scare them. They're crying, Rejoice. I do these scenarios in my head to make myself laugh sometimes. <laughs> so Jesus met them on the way. They're running, it says, with fear and great joy. Has anyone been there? With fear and great joy. I'm terrified, I don't know what's going on, but there's so much joy in me. And then Jesus pops out and is like, rejoice! <laughs> so they came and held him by the feet and worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. And here it is again, go and tell my brethren to go to Galilee and there they will see me. So what is it about Galilee that Jesus was so adamant 
even though he already saw some of them on the road. But what is it about Galilee that he's saying, no, this is where we're going to meet. This is where I want to go. This is where you will see me. So just a couple of historical facts about Galilee. Galilee is where is the place where everything began. We know that <clears throat> Jesus uh, was taken into Galilee from Egypt. He was first taken into Egypt, and then they were going to come back, uh, Mary and Joseph, and take Jesus back into Judea and to Bethlehem, where he was born. And there's word that, hey, Herod's son is now... How many of you remember reading this? I don't want to get into it, but I'm just going to give you this quick scoop. Herod's son is now ruling, so you guys might want to hang back. And so they go to Galilee. And so Jesus was raised a Galilean. It's where he was baptized by John. It's where Jesus called Peter and Andrew and said, follow me. I will make you fishers of men. It's where he also called James and John. It's where all of the disciples were either Galilean by birth or they lived there. It's where Jesus taught 19 of his 32 parables. It's where Jesus performed 25 of his 33 miracles, including his first miracle at the wedding in Cana of Galilee. It's where he walked on water. It's where he delivered the Sermon on the Mount. And it's where he transfigured before his disciples. So how many of you would say with me that there's something important that God is trying to say through his word about this place? And I'm not talking about a hill. We have to make it we have to make it life, amen? We have to apply it personal. I'm not talking about a physical place in Israel. I'm talking about there is something that the Spirit of God is saying through the words that I want us to catch this morning of how important this place is, amen? In Joshua chapter 20, there was a town called Kadesh in Galilee, and it was one of the cities appointed, just write it down, don't turn there. It is one of the cities appointed to be a place of refuge for the stranger that fled over being wrongly accused. So read Joshua 20. There, were, there are several cities. One of the cities is Kadesh in Galilee that was appointed as a place of refuge. In Matthew chapter two, Joseph is about to take Mary and Jesus and return to Judah after fleeing Egypt to escape Herod. But God warns Joseph and Mary in a dream, and they, they end up in Nazareth in Galilee instead. In John 7, verse 1, you'll read that Jesus wants to go to Judea, but he decides to stay in Galilee because he knows that his time has not come yet, and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and, and every, the political order of the day was out to kill him. The Jews were out to kill him, and so he stays in Galilee. So we see through all of this, that Galilee was a place of home for Jesus. That Galilee was home for Jesus. Not only was it home, Galilee was a place of refuge. Someone say refuge. It was a place of refuge. It was a place that his disciples, we're going to see it in a minute, that they had a hill. It's, 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 it's called a mountain in scripture, but it was really like a hill. They had a hill where uh, some people thought that where he taught the Sermon on the Mount or when he fed the 4,000 and the 5,000, two separate events, when he, when he preached to them, where he walked on water, there was a hill that the disciples and Jesus would go hang out. And it was also the same place where Jesus would say, stay here, and he would go up higher and pray. And so there was this place of refuge, this place of safety, this place of protection, this place of home that, uh, that Jesus loved and him and his disciples would go to and they would meet there. If you want to write this down, the word Galilee means circle or uh, like a circuit. 
It actually means the heathen circle. So the, a lot of the towns in Galilee were not actually very religious at all. They were known that the Gentiles lived there. Isaiah chapter nine calls it Galilee of the Gentiles. It was a town, it was a, Galilee was a province in Israel with several towns in it and all the towns kind of form a circle. So that's where it gets the name circuit. It's a, it's a circuit, it's a circle, but I'm, I wanna go a little bit deeper into the spiritual meaning. Are you guys with me? I'm giving you some historical context, but, and then we're gonna, we're gonna keep going. But it's a, it's a circle, it's a circuit of towns within this province, but it wasn't necessarily a liked area. How many of you remember, um, I think it was Nathaniel, Philip calls Nathaniel and says, this guy, uh, I found the Messiah. So um, just FYI, you should follow him too. And Nathaniel, and he says, well, uh, and Philip says he's from Nazareth. And Nathaniel says, Does anything good, has anything good ever come from Nazareth? Even the Pharisees uh, said there's nothing, no prophet, nothing good has ever come from Nazareth. Nothing spiritual. So this is this place where like the spiritual order of the day, the religious order of the day does not recognize. This is a place where the spiritual order of the day says that it's disqualified. It's kind of a lot like Risen Nation. It's, it's a place where the spiritual order of the day um, has discounted and it is a place of refuge. I pray that this place is a place of refuge for the Lord, a place of rest for the Lord, a place of refuge for the lonely and the lost and the broken, that we can come and breathe new life in them through the spirit of Jesus. And so this place of refuge, this place that was Jesus would go and hang out with his disciples and he was, he was born here. It's, it's, it's amazing all these different things that happen there. And so I was asking God, Lord, show me what it is about this place that, that it's like we, how many of you read scripture? How many of you study it? How many of you know that we can study it till we're blue in the face, but unless it becomes life, unless the Holy Spirit breathes on these words, it's just a historical book. But we also have to understand that nothing is in here just because, that nothing is in here uh, as a mistake or a coincidence. There's no coincidences in God that there's nothing in here haphazardly, that everything is in here for a reason. And, and the Holy Spirit, someone say Holy Spirit, divinely breathed on, on the writers, divinely breathed on the authors of this book and inspired by the Holy Spirit. So there's something that God wants to show us here. Amen? So Jesus goes up the mountain. Just write these down. And I, I really want to encourage you guys to study this because I believe that there, yeah, I'm, this is just the tip of the iceberg of what God may want to show you. So Jesus goes up the mountain in Matthew 5. It says he goes up the mountain with his disciples and he doesn't come down till Matthew 8. So read Matthew 5 to Matthew 8. And the whole time he's there, not one miracle is recorded, not, not one healing is recorded. And again, I say is recorded because it could have been, but it's not in Matthew 5 through 8. You don't hear about that. All you hear is Jesus teaching his disciples. And what I love about it is if you read Matthew 5, 1, and then you read 8, 1, 8, 1 starts out with, and he came down the mountain and a multitude followed, but he went up the mountain with 12. And so there is a generation, I believe, that is desperate to not stay down in the valleys of Galilee and not stay down by the sea, but that want to come up the mountain. And, it, and it's not going to be, how do I say this? Lord, help me. 
it's not gonna be the attraction of miracles that fill seats anymore. It's not gonna be the attraction of healings. And so I can go there and get my healing and get my fix. And we can see all the wheelchairs stacked. And I pray that happens. Somebody say amen in Jesus' name. Let it be in this house, Lord. But that's not gonna be the reason. God is calling a generation up the mountain so he can teach us. God is calling us a generation up the mountain so we can know him. God is calling a generation up the mountain so we can see him. God is calling a generation up the mountain so we can hear him. And he wants a people, sons and daughters of the most high God who look like him and think like him. The problem is, is that we know how Jesus thinks, but we don't think like him. Religion will tell you what he thinks and what he says, but we don't think and say what he thinks and says. We may think we do, but I believe we are coming into a different dimension. And I'm trying to use, to use words, and I don't want you guys to think that I'm trying to give you some motivational speech to get you to think better and to think in a different way. And it, it's not like a yoga thing where you could just meditate and then one day you have it. No, it's a complete surrender of death, that you are baptized death underwater, baptized, cleansed, purified, and brought up a brand new person. And this is a spiritual experience. Someone say spirit. So we don't need to get doctorates. We don't need to go to seminary. We don't need to go get theological degrees. It has nothing to do with knowledge, but I want Jesus to teach me. Does anyone else have this conviction? I want him to teach me because I want to know him. And in my human mind, I don't want to wait till I'm dead in heaven in a, well, you're not dead in heaven, but I don't want to wait till I have to die on earth to go to heaven, to be a spirit in my natural state, my body, my mind here on earth. Why am I here? It's not a pass through to eternity. So we can play, we can, we can play football and pay bills and, and we can, you know, just wander through life and try to keep the weight off. And, and, and be responsible and live a good Christian life and go to heaven and leave a legacy for your children and all that is amazing. But there is a dimension of the power of Jesus that I want to experience now. There is a dimension of his life, his mind, his thoughts, his ways that I want to experience now. But in my human frailty, in my flesh, what teaches me is the words what teaches me is words, so I eat. This is, Pastor William's talking about eating his flesh. This is eating his flesh. I digest the words because they're life, they're spirit. They're ever giving, ever loving life to me. And we need to digest him and allow him to take us up the mountain maybe. Maybe, sh maybe shut social media off for a few days and go up the mountain and let him teach you. Listen, he'll show you things that you don't have words for. And that's a perfect place. We always want to go in our secret place and come out with a testimony. But I love when he takes me in the secret place and he shows me a way of him, a revelation of his life. And I come out and I can't even share it. I can't explain it. And he will give us the words, but there is an experience that's more important than the testimony. There is an experience that is more important than me coming up here and sharing. 
When whoever comes behind this pulpit and they share, it should just be out of the overflowing of the abundance of their heart. But you shouldn't come up here and share some intimate details that the Lord is speaking with you until it is overflowing. Like David said, my cup overflows. The overflow is what you guys get. The overflow is what you should be bringing to the house, what you should be bringing to the church, but your cup should be full in private. Your cup should be full in the secret place. Your cup should be full up the mountain and let him teach you and prune you and disciple you and circumcise you. We see in the Old Testament that even Jesus, if you read about it, even Jesus wasn't identified. He wasn't given a name until after the eighth day of circumcision. And so we're looking for our calling. We're looking for our destiny. We're looking for all these things. And we're looking for like, Lord, what do you want me to do? What is my calling? What is my ministry? What is my purpose here? And we haven't allowed the Lord to to circumcise us. And he won't identify you until you are circumcised. Circumcision is the mark of a son. Got really quiet when I talk about circumcision. Does everyone know what that is? Okay, I don't have to explain it. I was going to say something. I'll refrain. Are you guys with me? Do you understand what I'm saying? Like there's the season of going up the mountain, being circumcised, your identity has changed and you come down with a brand new identity. You come down with a brand new life. You come down and you have let him teach you and let him change your mind and change your thoughts. And I don't want to be a generation that repeats what the previous one told us. And by generation, I don't mean age, but I don't, it's like from generation to generation, we change some of the wording, we change the outfits, we change the music, and it's the same religion. And God is after a generation that breaks that cycle of religion, that's not afraid to go up the mountain where nobody sees you, you're not heard, you're not on social media, you can't give your testimony, and he's teaching you and he's pruning you, and he's circumcising you, and he's showing you how to think. He's showing you how to, how to live in dominion and authority on this earth the way he did. Amen? So he goes up in Matthew chapter 5. He comes down in Matthew chapter 8, and he just teaches his disciples. He teaches the Beatitudes are in there. Uh, he teaches them that you are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. He teaches them uh, the Lord's prayer, how to pray. In Matthew six thirty three: seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things shall be added to you. So he goes up and he just gives them, he just downloads to them all these truths. Amen. That's what I want. I just, I want to know him and the power of his resurrection. And knowing him is not just knowing his power, even though we will experience that, but knowing him is letting him teach you letting him speak to you, letting him prune you, letting him change your hearts and change your minds. Because if you were offended, I don't know why I feel like I need to say this, but if you were offended by church, it was not, the, it was not Jesus that caused that offense. If you were offended by a pastor or by a leadership, it was religion. And the word says in Psalms 119, peace have they that love your law, and nothing shall offend them. So you're both wrong. (laughs) Amen? We are not allowed to be offended. It's in the kingdom constitution that you can't be offended. Because if you love his word, Psalms 119, I didn't make it up. 
You cannot, someone say cannot, cannot be offended. It's impossible. If you love his word, it's impossible. I thank God that Jesus didn't get offended. I thank God that his disciples didn't get offended. I thank God that we, we see the offense as an opportunity to overcome. We see his, the offense as an opportunity to overcome. And we know that it's not the person. It's maybe religion. It's maybe confusion. It's maybe misunderstanding. And we overcome those things and we work through them because God is not after church splits and who has the best worship and who can build the biggest thing. God is after unity of the body till we all come to a perfect man, to the unity of the faith, to the unity of the body until we get unified as his body, until we are unified as his body, he will not come back. Mark my words, he has to have a place to put his head, his authority, his dominion. When Peter peeks in the, in the tomb, it says that his, where the linen that covered his body, where his head was laid, was perfectly folded. And his body, the linens were just thrown around. And it's a picture of he's done his job. He's finished the work. He's completed all that he has needed completed. And he's waiting on his body to step up now. And as the church, we're in disarray. And Jesus, to come back, needs his body. There is an angel. Read through, I guarantee you, like read the last three chapters of all the gospels and read about all these different accounts of the resurrection that we'll see in Matthew's account that there was an angel sitting at the head and another one sitting at the feet where he was raised from. And they're seated. It's a picture of, it's finished. It's a picture of authority, but the body is in disarray and we need to walk in what's already been finished for us. Amen. Matthew 28, 16. We'll just skip down six verses to 16. And it says, Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee to the mountain that Jesus had appointed for them. So he appointed this place for them. When they saw him, so now everyone, all the disciples have seen him. The Marys, everyone's excited. He said, rejoice. He, sh he showed himself to them on the way. And now they're in this, this refuge, this place of refuge that they would go and hang out. And they're on this mountain that it says Jesus appointed them. And it says they saw him and they worshiped him, but some doubted. I don't know how you doubt at that point, but it said, the word says that some doubted. And Jesus came and spoke to them saying, all authority. Someone say all authority. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. See, I think sometimes we forget that Jesus is king. We, we, we know him as, as our bridegroom here. We know him as our savior. We know him as our father. But do we know him as king? And we need a fresh revelation of him as king because when Pilate asks him, are you king of the Jews? And he says, you've said rightly. I am king of the Jews, and I've come to witness of that truth. I've come, this is the reason I came, to witness of that truth, that I am king. I've come to establish my kingdom on this earth, and he's still doing it. It's not a historical book. He's still doing it. And so we worry about all the things in Russia and China, and we worry about all the political things and things that are happening, and we forget that there's a king on a throne. There's a king on a throne on earth. There is a king, a resurrected king that is ruling and reigning in the hearts of men. 
and we believe it and we think that a president is gonna be our ticket out. We think that electing someone is gonna change everything. There's only one king that can change heaven and earth. There's only one king that can change abortion. There's only one king that can remove transgenderism in the church. There's only one king that can remove compromise in the church. There's only one king. He's king. He's king. He's ruler of heaven and earth. Everything bows to him. He holds everything together by the word of his power. All things were created through him and for him. And without him, nothing, nothing, nothing consists. Without him, there is nothing. Without him, there's no China, there's no Russia. He's got a plan. Calm down and stop worrying. He's the king. He owns a cattle on a thousand hills. He owns every part of the world and every person in it. There's nothing outside of his grip, his authority, and his power, not even the devil. If that offends you, you think the devil's way too big. There's nothing outside of his authority, nothing outside of his rule. He said, I came to be king of the earth. As it is in heaven, so let it be on earth. He came as king, and we tremble watching the news. You're not an American citizen. You're not black. You're not white. You're a citizen of the kingdom. You're a son. Not only are you a citizen of the kingdom, you are a part of the royal family. You're a son and daughter of the most high God. We need this revelation to shake out all the garbage that fear and religion deposits in us by watching Fox and MSNBC. God forbid we ever watch that channel. And we let the, the, what's going on in the day to shake our inside. But we're of another kingdom. I'm not saying don't care. I'm not saying don't vote. I'm not saying don't be concerned. I'm not saying don't pray. We need to do all of those things, but in a deep inward knowing of who we are and who he is. And at the end of the day, I feel like this is real basic, but at the end of the day, he wins it all. At the end of the day, he wins everything. At the end of the day, he's victorious. At the end of the day, every knee will bow. And every tongue, the word says, will joyfully proclaim that's willingly. Do with that what you will. Kim Jong-un will willfully, joyfully proclaim the chubby Asian guy that Jesus is Lord. Somebody say amen. We need a revelation of, of him as king. He's kind of a beast. He's not as, we make him so like, oh, geez. The, I don't want the feminists to get mad at me. He came as a man. He said the man, just as the man is head to his wife, Christ is head to the church. So his life was a picture of our relationship with him. His life, our marriages are a picture 
of our relationship with Jesus. He came as a man. He's manly. He came as a warrior. He came as a king. And I'm not, and, and, and there are, for the theologians in this room, there are uh, feminine Hebrew words in the Old Testament that describe God, like Elohim. Or I, I'm sorry, El Shaddai, not Elohim, El Shaddai. So I'm not making it about gender. What I'm making it about is his, ro- his royal kingship and that he's not a wussy. He's not feminine. Your troubles, oh dear Lord, your troubles aren't as big to him as they are to you. Your sickness isn't as big to him as it is to you. What's going on in the world isn't as important and as uh, fearful to him and as dreadful, and he doesn't really dwell on it much because he's a seated king in all authority and all the power, and he's a man. He's not feminine, he's not a wuss, and he kicks butt. We need a revelation of this Jesus who is ripped and kicking butt, and this feminine thing that religion has made it this feminine guy holding a lamb in the picture with blue eyes. <laughs> no offense to people with blue eyes. That Jesus has, we've made him so weak. We've brought him down to our thinking and to our level. Your sin doesn't even bother him. Can I say that? He doesn't want you to sin, but he knows who you are. Because Pastor Williams said it on Friday, we, by his crucifixion, he has perfected all those that are being sanctified. So that means that Jesus sees you perfected, although you're being sanctified. That means that your sanctification process does not change his mind on your perfection. Your sanctification process does not adjust him and change him. He is seated. He doesn't move. I want you guys to get a picture of this amazing king. He doesn't move. He doesn't get flustered. He doesn't, um, <clears throat> he doesn't change with the winds of what we're doing and what we're talking about. And so if you've never committed a sin in your entire life and you're 30 years old and you fall for the first time, it's not like Jesus is like, whoa, blew my mind. I can't believe this. And now I can't, now I can't identify Now, I can't identify with that. I can't be near him. And religion teaches us that sin separates us from God. It doesn't separate us from God. Your shame separates you from God. Believing a lie separates you from God. How you think separates you from God. Eve's first sin was not of eating of the apple. Eve's first sin was believing a lie. And so we think that we are, that he's shaken and he's so earthly and he's so, and he's so carnal that he could be shaken by our sin. And he's like, no, they're perfect. You're perfect. I said, you're perfect. You're perfect. I have perfected. That's to be made whole. Nothing lacking. No spaces, no holes. I've perfected, completed, made whole by my crucifixion. Them that are being sanctified. So don't worry about the process. You're perfect. 
<laughs> don't believe it. You don't believe it. Do you believe it? You don't worry about the process. You're delivered. You will be free when you believe you're free. You'll be delivered when you believe you're delivered. You got to believe it. All right. I don't think I'm going to get through this. Okay, so Galilee, we're back to that. So he, got, he goes up the mountain and he says, meet me there, this place I appointed for you. And it says they worshiped him and some doubted. So Jesus purposely met them at a very familiar place that they know well, but now he was speaking to them as a resurrected king. Okay, you guys got to get the picture. So he's meeting them at this place that they've, they've met Jesus at. He called them at. He performed miracles in this region. And they're very, very familiar with this region. It's a place of refuge. It's a place that they have kind of identified as their own in the midst of this heathen circle. They've kind of identified as like, this is our place. This is our appointed mountain in the midst and far away from miles and miles and miles and days of travel time away from Jerusalem, away from the Mecca of religion, we have this piece of land, this piece of mountain that is our place. And so we're familiar with this place. So the spiritual connotation of this, the implication of why Jesus said, meet me in Galilee and there you will see me. He was saying, I want you to do what you did before, but from the perspective of the resurrection. He was saying, I want you to do what you did before, but from a brand new perspective, because he met them at the same place. He met them at the same mountain where they've experienced him before, but a brand, but a brand new resurrected king. So it's not the Jesus, they knew him and they recognized him at a certain point. They all recognized him but he was the resurrected king at that point. Are you guys following me? So he's saying, I want you to go now with this perspective of the resurrection. Jeremiah 1, 11 and 12 says, moreover, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Jeremiah, what do you see? And Jeremiah said, I see a branch of an almond tree. Then the Lord said to me, you have seen well, for I am ready to perform my word. So Galilee is this place where God brings us and says, what do you see? I'm here to ask you, Risen Nation, what do you see? This word almond, the branch of an almond tree, um, <clears throat> for those of you that want to study it more, the, an almond branch was also what budded, what blossomed, uh, that identified Aaron as being priest. It was put into the Ark of the Covenant. Almond blossoms were at top, on top of the lampstands, the, the candles in the tabernacle. And so they're, they're throughout Scripture, just... Just search for the word almond in your Strong's Concordance and let the Lord speak to you. But in, in quick context, it, it signifies favor. It signifies hope, life, and resurrection. Just by the shape of it, it is pointing up. It's resurrecting. It's standing up again to a brand new life. Almonds, when you pick them, they have a shell that you have to, like raw almonds, you have to peel this. How many of you have seen raw almond? This is not spiritual, like actually an almond. There's a shell around it. You have to break it and crack it. So it speaks of sh the shedding of an old life and the raising up of something new. It, was, it is the first tree to blossom 
um, in the spring. Sometimes it would even blossom with snow in the winter. So it's the first tree to blossom and it speaks of resurrection. So Jeremiah is saying, I see from the resurrection. I'm seeing hope. I'm seeing favor. And this is what I see this morning for, for this group and for those that are watching online prophetically, favor and hope and life. Somebody say amen. Agree with me. Resurrection. I see resurrection. And so we must see everything from the perspective of the resurrection. When the Lord asked Jeremiah what he, what he saw, that word means to look at, to inspect, to consider, or to behold, perceive. So what do you perceive? This is where I want to get to. What do you behold? What do you consider? When we come through trials that we face like these disciples where I'm worshiping him, but I'm also doubting. Because you come here and worship, it doesn't mean that you fully believe. Because we can worship him, it doesn't mean that we are really truly believe who he is and who we are to him. And so we can still walk in this place of doubt. We can still walk in this place of fear. We can still walk in a place of having religious mindset and not really, under, not really knowing it because our perspective is skewed. Everything in your life is a result of your perspective, Everything that you see is a result of your perspective. What you see is not really what you see. What you understand is not really what you understand. What you see and understand is your perspective. Your perspective is a lens between you, reality, and truth. What you, what you see is your perspective, what you behold. And so I'm asking you today on Resurrection Sunday, what do you behold? What do you perceive we can all believe amazing things about Jesus and we, we will never stop preaching about Jesus and Christ crucified, never stop preaching about him and him alone. But I wanna tell you this morning, what do you behold and perceive about yourself? Because the Lord asked uh, Jeremiah, what do you see? What do you see? He didn't say, uh, Jeremiah, I've seen this over you even though he knew what he was going to respond because it was, it was God. But he, what do you see? What do you perceive? And how do you look at yourself? How do you look at your family members? How do you look at others? And are we seeing from this perspective of Galilee, from this perspective of the resurrection? Or if we, are we looking through the lens of our experience? Are we looking through the lens of our understanding? Are we looking through the lens of our past and our shame and our fear and our guilt? Are y'all with me? This word doubted in verse 17, when it says, and some doubted, it says they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. That means to duplicate mentally. I love this. It means to duplicate mentally. It means to waver in opinion. It's dividing your mental state. It's dividing your opinion. It's, it, it comes from the word twain or two, and it's the same word. This word is only twice in all of scripture, this Greek word. I'm not even going to pronounce it. It's also in Matthew 14 when Peter walked on the water towards Jesus, and he noticed the wind, the boisterous wind and the waves coming, and he said that he took his eyes off Jesus and he fell, and then Jesus picks him up and says, oh, you have little faith. Why did you doubt? That's why did you have this wavering of opinion? Why did you have this twain? Why didn't you think that you and I were the same? The word twain, it's, it's two, but it actually speaks of a twisting as in a rope, two being twisted together to make one. And he's saying, and, and 
Jesus was saying to Peter, why did you think that we were different? Why did you separate us mentally? The, 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 the wall of partition that Paul speaks about is something that we establish. It's not something that, that the, the, the devil does to every Christian. It's this wall of partition of, no, you're wavering mentally. You're doubting. You're too. And in 1 Kings 18, how many remember when Elijah goes to the prophets of Baal and he, and, he, and he gathers all the people and he says, how long will you falter between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. Me, read 1 Corinthians 18. I love that story. It's like, I'll read it sometimes just to get pumped up because he's like, all right, Baal, make an altar and I'll make an altar and then put a sacrifice on it and whoever's altar gets lit up with fire, we know that your God is real. How many of you remember this story? And they cut up the sacrifice, they put it on the altar of Baal, and these, these uh, people start worshiping their gods, and they cut themselves, and nothing happens. And I love Elijah. He's, Elijah was a baller. And he's like making fun of them. He's like, oh, your God can't hear you. Maybe he's sleeping. <laughs> That's literally what he says. And um, he's kind of arrogant, I think, too, but it's okay. And uh, and then he puts the sacrifice on his and he says, three times pour water on it till it's full. Over and over again, three times. And then he calls down fire and it consumes the sacrifice. And then everyone worships God. It's an amazing story. You should read it. That doesn't really have to do with my message. I just love that story. All right. But how long will you falter between two opinions? That's what doubt that's what doubt is. Like, if you think you're a son of God, if you know you're a daughter of God, how long will you falter with the other side? How long will you go back and forth? That's what falter means. How long will you go back and forth? How long will you be divided in your mind? Like, either you are a son of God, you are a daughter of God, either you are his bride or you're not. This is what doubt is. Either we are we have been sanctified, we've been set apart, we've been perfected, or we haven't. Either we are sinners or we're not. I pray in the mighty name of Jesus, Lord, that you remove all the doubt in this place, that you remove all the division of mind, that you remove all the division of thinking, that we will believe what your word says about us. In Jesus' name, that we will believe that by your resurrection, we can walk in this resurrection life, in this newness of life. Second Peter 1 says, make your, be diligent to make your calling and election sure. So we have to be so sure. The way, what God is calling this, this house into, this apostolic house, this family into as we are branching out, is to make our calling and election sure. And please hear me. I'm not belittling anybody that's walking through difficult times or, or struggling with, with imaginations. But the process of being sanctified, is, there's, no, there's no time limit to it. You don't have, there's, it's not like you have to do something to speed up the process. I'm saying don't be divided in your mind of just worship and don't doubt. Because they worshiped and doubted. Don't worship, I mean, don't doubt, just worship. Don't be divided in your mind. Understand that you are the righteousness of God in Christ, even in your trial. Somebody needs to hear that. You are the righteousness of God, even though you fell last night. It doesn't change it. If that would change, that means that God is a very weak God. This is the crap that religion has told you that's not true. And I'm not giving, I'm not giving you a license to sin. 
But grace is kind of a license because it's grace. So if you want to sin, go for it. But I don't want to sin. If you want to sin, go for it. If you want to disappoint God, if you want to walk in the ways of the world, then you have, that's between you and God, and you have some things that you want to work out. If you willingly take advantage of his grace, then that's a very, very dark place. I'm not saying that for a second. What I am saying is that the process of being sanctified does not null our perfection. It doesn't change what he's done. And so this is where the division in opinion comes because we believe something and we read, okay, we walk by faith and not by sight. And we think that's because we can, so we can get the car we want. We say this, we walk by faith and not by sight. No, what that means is no matter what you see, it's not reality. Your faith, what you believe for, without faith, it is impossible to please him. Faith is the substance, the evidence of things unseen. So faith is what we see. Faith is our lens. Believing is our lens. This is the perspective of the resurrection is not doubting. It's not coincidence. I didn't just pick a verse to preach on. This, before Jesus gives them this great commission, it, this verse is just in there. This double-mindedness that even standing there with their resurrected king, this division of thinking, this faltering between two opinions is still there. And this is what plagues the church. We read one thing, we worship about one thing, we proclaim one thing, we declare one thing, but we really think another way. There needs to be a generation that has become so dead to the things of this world and so dead to the things of religion, so dead to the, the buzzwords and, and the sayings and the, we want to hear preachers that tickle what we know so we can say amen. And maybe what you know is garbage. So you need to change the way you think. Be renewed by the transforming of your mind. Romans 12 tells us, be renewed. It'll make you new if you just go up the mountain with him and let him change you. Because I guarantee you, if you go up the mountain and let him teach you and you pursue to know him, that I may know him, first of all, and the power, but I may know him, first of all, and the power of his resurrection, it will change everything. It will remove all division. It will remove all doubt. You ought to be happy. It'll remove everything that doesn't belong. And see what religion has done. See, the devil is very, very sly. He has no power but he's sly, he's smart, and we're dumb because we believe him. <laughs> Offended people all over the place. Peace have they that love thy law, and nothing shall offend them. <clears throat> Lost my train of thought. What was I talking about? Oh yeah, he's very sly, and I still can't remember. All right. John chapter 11, it'll come back to me. It'll come back to me. John chapter 11. Oh, I remember. <laughs> go, to, <laughs> go to John chapter 11, though, and I'll, I'll give you a second, and then I'll say what I was going to say. So the devil's sly. So he'll... <clears throat> He'll change little things. 
This is where doubt comes in. This is where disbelief comes in. This is where our faith is tested. He'll change little things and he'll use pulpits to do it. And not that the people speaking are of the devil, but, oh, Jesus. But he changed, the, he changed his language for the satisfaction and the appeasing of religion. And so sometimes we will change the language for the appeasing of the religion in you to not offend you. But I want to offend the religion out of you. I would like to offend the crap out of you. Can we say that? <laughs> and so religion tells us, I feel like, do I need to balance it all the time? You guys know what I'm saying? I don't need to give a, okay, thank you, Pastor Toronto. I'm not anyways, but thank you. So what the devil does and what religion does is he makes you think that you're not enough, that there's more to you that needs to be added. Um, how do I say this? He makes it in a way that there's, you need to attain more. This is what religion does. Religion is about attaining to get somewhere in the kingdom. The kingdom, what Jesus said, what his disciples said, what Paul wrote is about removing to attain resurrection. Okay, so religion is about adding. I need to spend more time in prayer, need to spend more time in the word, and we need to do that, but it needs to be out of the abundance of your heart, not because, you're, not because your pastor told you to do it or you wanna be more anointed. If you're doing it because for something, I need, to, I need to work on my prophetic gifts, so I'm gonna read the prophets. I need to, to get better at this, so I'm gonna spend more time with him. Like, like you said on Friday night, my Uncle Benny spent eight hours, so I'm gonna spend nine hours a day with him. It's, we don't need to attain anything. And so this is what religion subtly does is, you're not enough. The fullness of God, the fullness of Christ, resurrection power doesn't live in you. That's where the doubt comes from, because remember this Remember what you did? Remember the fall that you had? Remember how you looked at that thing? Remember how you looked at that lady? Remember how you lied? Remember? Don't forget. You're not there yet. That's what the devil does. And a lot of churches say amen because we, we applaud it and it's religion. Someone say religion. It's shame. God comes to Adam and Eve and says, who said you were, who told you you were naked? They didn't know who they were. Their shame came from believing a lie. And so we believe lies about ourselves that we aren't enough. And when I say we, I don't mean me, but the Christ in me is not enough. We believe lives that I'm not perfected, that I'm not whole, that I'm not complete in him. And so as soon as we begin to truly believe that we are complete, then everything else that's in our mind becomes an imposter. <laughs> If I'm complete, 1 Corinthians 2 says, we have the mind of Christ. Someone say, we have. We have the mind of Christ. If I have the mind of Christ, my mind, it doesn't say we're gonna get. It doesn't say one day. It says, we have. Someone say, I have. I have the mind of Christ. If I have the mind of Christ, it's not one day I'm gonna attain and achieve this mind and glory to God. I'm gonna stop sinning. Thank you, Jesus. No, it's we have the mind of Christ. 
whole, complete. And so if you want to keep sinning, there's something in there that doesn't belong. If you, are, if you are falling, it's a removal. The kingdom is way more about removal and dying than adding. There's nothing else to add, only remove. You ought to be happy. It's freedom. It's freedom because I don't have to try and be something, anything that any preacher tells you that you need to try and attain. It's religion. Now, I'm not talking about devotion. I'm not talking about devoting our lives to the Lord and running after him. With I'm not talking about any of that. I'm talking about in order to be accepted by Jesus, in order to be the, the fullness of who I am, I have to attain something. That's religion. And so we need to focus on removing. And that's where Paul says that I may be made conformable to his death. Because the formula is me dying equals resurrection. Me plus dying equals resurrection. And the more that I die, the more that Jesus would come alive in me. And I pray that next week we come here and I see more of Jesus in you. I pray next week we come here that you sound more like him, that you walk like more like him, that you talk like him because he is the resurrection and he is the life. He is not a resurrected king as in the past. He is seated, resurrected king. He is resurrection itself. He is life itself. He is newness of life itself. You've been given all things, all things, all things, all things that pertain unto life and godliness. Second Peter tells us there's nothing else you need but to believe. The currency of the kingdom is faith. This is how the kingdom operates in the same way that the law of the Old Testament was satisfied by obedience. Grace is satisfied by faith. And so you needed obedience to fulfill the law. And Jesus comes, fulfills it all and says, grace, you just need faith. You need to believe what he's done. Believe what he's done for you. Believe what he's done for your family. Oh, I'm running out of time. All right. Might skip some over this a little bit. Is anyone hearing anything this morning? Okay, I'm going to go through this real quick. John chapter 11. And we're going to start reading verse 17. And my brother read a little bit of it. We know that Jesus shows up after four days after Lazarus has been dead. And he comes to Bethany. And it says, many of the Jews had joined women. And, and many of the Jews had joined the women around Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother. And Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him. But Mary was sitting in the house. Now Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Even now, I know that you, whatever you ask, our God will, whatever you ask of God, God will give you. And Jesus said, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, this religious thing of, I know he will rise again on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, someone say in me, I am the resurrection and the life he who believes in me. By the way, in verse 14, we won't read it now, but Jesus basically says, I'm kind of glad I wasn't there. So now I can, I can show you how to believe. 
That's powerful, so study that on your own time. But verse 25, he who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me, so it's one life. When you believe in him, you live in him. It's not believing about him. He's not talking about believing that he exists only, even though obviously we do. It's not even about believing that he is a son of God. Even though we do believe that, it's believing in him. It's being seated in him, believing from the place of living in him. Does that make sense? Like we, It's more than believing that he is the son of God because the word says that the Jesus came and the devils asked him, are you here to torment us before our time, O son of the most high, O son of God? So religion will tell you, well, you got to believe that, that he is God. And that's true. I'm not, not taking that away, but it's incomplete because there's more than just believing that he is God. Of course, we believe that he's God. Of course, we believe in him like we believe about him. We believe we believe what the word says about him. Of course, we believe that he is the son of God, but that in itself will not satisfy what he's after because he says, whoever lives and believes, lives in me, lives in me. Someone say lives in me, capital N, lives and believes in me shall never die. And then he says these amazing words, do you believe this? And he's still asking us today, do you believe it? Do you believe that you can believe in him, that the state of your believing is based on living in him? Are you guys listening? Because you're not. The state of my life is believing in him. It's like 2 Corinthians 5. If, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. If anyone is in, someone say in, in Christ. Acts 17, for in him we live and move and have our being. It's a life that is lived in him and believing from that perspective. Few more amens. We're starting to get it. I'm gonna break through this. It's a life I'm not taking away, I'm not saying that to not believe on Jesus. I don't have to say that, right? I don't have to qualify that. Okay. Four rights. I'm not saying don't believe in Jesus. I'm not saying any of that. What I'm saying is it's not just believing that he is the son of God. That's the, that's, of course, we should believe that. That's the starting point. But what Jesus is after is, is living a life that is seated in heavenly places, living a life that is seated in him, living a life that is in him, that everything we do comes from a place of being in him. And so we can all, we can all shout hallelujah when we talk about Jesus living in us, but it kind of hurts our religion a little bit when we talk about us being seated in him us living in him, living in this place of being in this man, this life, this dominion, this authority, this power, this way of living and believing from that perspective, believing from the perspective, from the angle of Galilee, of, 
My Everyone I know might be the same. My house might be the same. My car might be the same. Every, nothing has changed. My bank account hasn't changed. But there's something that has changed in me. My perspective has changed. How I see things has changed. How I see my wife has changed. My children, how I see them has changed. How I parent has changed. Everything has changed because I believe in him. I don't just believe about him. I believe in him because if I believe in him, his life is not contingent, doesn't depend upon my circumstances. It's a, it's a whole new perspective. And I'm not trying to stir your faith or trying to get you to believe harder. It's a totally different kind of belief system. It's taking our faith out of what we see, taking our belief system out of what we see because Thomas and those disciples, it says they doubted because they just couldn't get away from like he looks like a normal man. And Thomas had to see that he had scars in his hands and in his feet in order for him to believe. And so I want to come and, and pray that God eradicates fear, that God eradicates doubt, that God eradicates double-mindedness, that God eradicates division of thinking, and that we truly believe who we are as sons and daughters of God. Somebody say amen. So the word believe is to have faith in or upon a person or thing, to put trust in, to be persuaded, and to place confidence in. There's a difference between believing someone and believing in someone. Believing in is complete disregard of what makes sense to me and placing all trust in that person. I'll say it again. Believing in is complete disregard of what makes sense to me and placing all trust in that person. John 20, verses 30 to 31 and, and it says, and truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. This is the end of the book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Um, perfect, amazing, yes, absolutely true. That's an absolute truth. You have to believe that he is the Christ and the Son of God. I really wanna make sure I'm not, not saying that that's not true. 100%, we, that is our first faith. And when we give our lives to Jesus, we are saying, Lord, I believe you are the Son of God. I believe you came to take away my sins and you died for me, you died as me. And I believe that you are God in the flesh. So that is the first step. But it continues, verse 31. And that believing, you may have life in his name. That is, that you may have life in his authority and character. So believing is living life in his name. The believing that, that he is after. And he says, do you believe this? He says it to, to the Marys. Do you believe this? And Martha, that believing is having life in his name. It's walking in his authority. It's walking in his character. It's not just his, his name, you know, and it's a, it's a cute thing to do about marriage. Oh, we bear his name. Thank you, Jesus. It's not just that. It's it's not a wedding dress. Oh, God. Lord, help me. We diminish sometimes the power of this truth of being his bride, and we make it cutesy. It's not cutesy. It's a life. It's not cutesy. It's a commitment. Because those that are in the room can say that marriage all the time isn't easy, and that love is a choice, and commitment is a choice. And so it's not a blissful thing you know, you wear your white dress to church. Please don't wear a white dress to church. We, we diminish and we make it silly of the, of the magnitude of what this means to be married to him. 
Are you guys with me? And so we don't just come in his name because it's fun to say and we say it after we pray. We come in his name because we come in his authority and his character and his, and his power and his dominion and his might. We come because he's king. We come as, as royal, a royal priesthood of kings and priests. Are you all with me? The Diaglot translation of that, those two verses says, these things but have been written. Everyone hear this, that you may believe that Jesus is the anointed, the son of the son of God, and that believing life you may have in the name of him. That's <laughs> so good. I'm gonna say it again. And it sounds like it's all weird, but this is how this translation is. It's, it's word for word, but this is how it's translated into the Greek. If you take it word, word for word, that you may believe that Jesus is the anointed, the son of God, and that believing life, this is what we are after, a believing life, not just to believe and live our life, but a believing life, a type of believing that changes your life, a type of believing that sets your life, a type of believing that changes your path, a type of believing that changes your behavior. We're not believing for better behavior. We believe and the better behavior will come. We don't believe to be set free. We believe and the, the freedom will become. Will, will, will come. And it says that believing life you may have in the name of him. So this is a life that we walk in, that we live in, in his name, in his nature. That's what it means to believe in him. Is anyone getting this? Am I talking Chinese? No? Okay. Pastor Kaylee, where is she? Do some, she speaks Chinese. All right. Your life... <laughs> Your life will reflect what you believe. Write that down. My life will reflect what you believe. First John 5.10 says, He who believes in the Son of God has the witness. That's the evidence given. Can I get some help on the keys? Witness. Like Pastor William was talking about, that is the evidence given, the record, the report, the testimony in himself. First John 5.10, I'm gonna say it again. I need you guys to listen. He who believes in the Son of God has the witness. Point at me and say, I have the witness. I have, if I believe in the Son of God, I have the evidence given, the record, the report, and the testimony in myself. And so if we believe that Jesus died and rose from the grave, does anyone believe it here? If we believe that he is the resurrection and the life, if we believe that though sometimes our circumstances might not change, even though sometimes that that raise that we're, ask, that we're hoping for might not come, that financial breakthrough, that healing, whatever we're asking for, just like the disciples, they're in this familiar place of Galilee. And sometimes we might be in a place that's familiar and by sight, nothing has changed, but inwardly, there's something that's called faith that changes everything. It's the evidence of things unseen. It's the substance of things hoped for. You, is this nailing? Is this getting to the point? And we need to understand that our calling is not to achieve something for God in the kingdom. Our calling is to believe. 